The NATO summit is ending with promises to Ukraine that it can eventually join the alliance after Russia's invasion ends. It's Wednesday, July 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, a new government report on inflation due out today is expected to show a slowdown in price increases. Also, we hear from the climate advisor at NASA about how climate change is affecting the weather and what the future might hold. The last nine years were the warmest since modern record keeping began. So we do see more heavy precipitation events, more flooding, and in some regions, more drought driven by climate. Plus, putting the overdose reversal drug Narcan in vending machines, including in a police station. And we preview the Emmy nominations coming out today amid the writer's strike in Hollywood. Forecast says sunny today, highs in the 90s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. On the sidelines of the NATO summit in Lithuania today, President Biden is joining fellow leaders of the G7. NPR's Asma Khalid reports they'll announce long-term commitments to support Ukraine. Biden plans to make an announcement alongside Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky to bolster Ukraine's security. Amanda Sloat is the Biden administration's senior director for Europe. The United States, along with G7 leaders, will announce our intent to help Ukraine build a military that can defend itself and deter a future attack. The White House says the declaration being announced today signals a commitment to building a joint long-term defensive force for Ukraine to ensure stability that will send a message to Russia. This commitment also comes despite no concrete timetable for Ukraine to join NATO. Asma Khalid, NPR News, Vilnius, Lithuania. People in Vermont are cleaning up after catastrophic flooding this week. It's not raining anymore, but rivers are still above flood stage, and several Vermont dams have been pushed to their limits. Water has receded in Vermont's capital, Montpelier, but mud fills areas of downtown where significant flooding had cut off parts of the city. Southern and western states are facing dangerous heat. Forecasters have posted excessive heat watches, advisories and warnings from California to the Central Plains. It's even excessively hot in Florida. Kristen Sococcio grew up in Pompano Beach. I feel hotter this year compared to any of the other years. I don't remember being this hot when I was a kid. Heat indexes could soar above 110 degrees today in parts of Kansas, Missouri and Oklahoma. Top intelligence and defense officials conducted what's believed to be the first-ever classified briefing on artificial intelligence for senators on Capitol Hill. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports. Artificial intelligence is in its early stages, but senators stressed after the briefing that Congress should encourage positive impacts from AI like curing diseases, but be mindful of risks. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, the top Republican on the Intelligence Committee, says the U.S. can set standards for AI, but adversaries aren't likely to have any constraints. Technological advances are impossible to put back in the the genie back in the bottle. It's transnational. So even if we passed all the laws in the world in the United States, and we can regulate how our government uses it, you can't put genies like this back in bottles. Lawmakers say it's too early to say what kind of legislation is needed, but Congress needs to consider AI's impact on jobs and national security. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. The Iowa state legislature has passed a bill outlawing nearly all abortions in the state. The lawmakers were called into special session yesterday by Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. They took one day to debate and pass the ban. Governor Reynolds says she plans to sign the bill by Friday. It would take effect immediately. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Governor Healy will visit western Massachusetts today to survey the damage from historic flooding. She'll be in North Adams and Williamsburg. Those areas, along with parts of Vermont, were hit with unprecedented flooding this week. As Abigail Giles reports, a new study finds that without action to fight climate change, storms like these could become more commonplace. Dartmouth researchers found New England could see a more than 50 percent increase in extreme rain events by the end of century if the world does very little to stop burning fossil fuels in the coming years. But if we make even a moderate dent in emissions, it could make a big difference. Jonathan Winter is a professor of geography at Dartmouth and lead author. I think it about half the increase in extreme precipitation. So it very much does matter what we do now in terms of what extreme precipitation we see in the future. Vermont is seeing historic flooding this week, and New England saw a 55 percent increase in extreme rain events between 1958 and 2016. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Abigail Childs. Boston Medical Center is no longer allowing homeless families to stay at its hospital overnight. Officials there cite safety concerns with the practice, which has gone on for more than a year. One night this week, more than 130 people slept on the floor in one of Boston Medical Center's lobbies. BMC is giving families transportation to shelters or private homes, and some are being sent to Logan Airport. That includes migrant families who have just arrived in the area. The hospital's asking the state to do more to shelter unhoused families. The mayor of New Hampshire's largest city is jumping into the race for governor. Democrat Joyce Craig says she's running to defend abortion rights and create job opportunities. Craig was the first woman elected mayor of Manchester. It's not clear if current governor, Republican Chris Sununu, plans to run for a fifth term. He says he'll make a decision later this month. There's a slight chance that you might be able to see the northern lights in parts of Massachusetts this week, but it is a slight chance. Forecasters with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say that Massachusetts residents could see a slight glow, and that's if clouds don't get in the way. Offer Cohen teaches physics at UMass Lowell. I think everybody should try to see it once in their lifetime because it's really a a unique opportunity to see this fantastic uh, natural phenomenon. If there is a chance to see the northern lights, he says the best time is between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. The time is seven minutes past seven. WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. In sports, the New England Revolution will host Atlanta United FC in Foxborough tonight. The Revs have just one loss in their last eight games. Red Sox pitcher Kenley Jansen struck out the only batter he faced last night at the All-Star Game in Seattle. The National League beat the American League 3-2, and a $250 million renovation at Gillette Stadium will be finished by the time the Patriots play their home opener in September. The Kraft Group tells the Boston Globe the project includes a new new 370-foot-wide video scoreboard in the north end zone. There will also be renovations to a lighthouse observation deck. In our forecast, sunny today. A few scattered showers in spots this afternoon. Highs getting into the low 90s today. Partly cloudy tonight. Temperatures near 70 degrees and partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s. Looks like a chance of showers every day starting Friday and continuing into next week. Right now it's 74 degrees in Boston. 
For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, lawmakers and PGA executives face off over a Saudi stake in professional golf. First, though, President Biden and the leaders of 30 other NATO countries are wrapping up their summit in Lithuania today. Biden will meet with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky a day after NATO agreed that Ukraine would eventually be allowed to join the alliance, but didn't say when or exactly how. Joining us now from the Lithuanian capital, Vilnius, is NPR's Eleanor Beardsley. Eleanor, I mentioned what President Biden said. What's NATO saying? Well, just now, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg spoke, standing beside Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. He didn't say when Ukraine would join NATO, but he announced other support measures like continued delivery of weapons and training. And Stoltenberg emphasized that NATO and Ukraine are closer than ever. President Biden, in particular, has said now isn't the time for Ukraine to join NATO. But Stoltenberg said there is no risk-free path to take, and the biggest risk would be to allow Russian President Vladimir Putin to win. All right, so no membership, no real clear path either. A House President Zelensky reacting? Well, he expressed frustration and called it absurd that there's no timeline, but he also said Ukraine doesn't want a world war, and he admitted all the signals NATO is sending are very important and thanked it for its support. Now, isn't there a little bit of symbolism here with the summit being held in Lithuania, a former Soviet republic? I mean, what would, what's the mood like as people there watch Russia wage a war on Ukraine, which is also another Soviet, uh, former Soviet republic? Exactly. A. Well, everything feels very close. I've been talking to people in Vilnius, and you know, Lithuania is one of the three Baltic nations occupied for 50 years by the Soviet Union, and the idea of NATO's collective defense, you know, all for one and one for all, is not some sort of esoteric concept here. It's about real protection from Russia. Let's listen to what some people told me, starting with 47-year-old Rima Oberkita, who was pointing visitors in the right direction at, the, at an intersection. She's a volunteer at the summit. It's a momentum moment, absolutely. I think it's the hugest event after our independence. Lithuania, along with neighboring Baltic nations Latvia and Estonia, became independent in 1991 as the Soviet Union collapsed. She says she's volunteering because she cherishes her country's freedom and prosperity. The independence uh, of my country is very important. It's in our blood. And especially having in mind that we have constant threats from Russia and not knowing what's going to be tomorrow, we all have to volunteer and do a lot. So Lithuania to, to continue being on the spot of the world map. Christine Berzenia, a Baltic security and defense expert with the German Marshall Fund, echoes this sentiment. This is an area that has survived incredible oppression, deportations, repeated attacks, and risen to independence through nonviolent resistance that had a massive cultural uprising called the Singing Revolution. In August 1989, almost two million people joined hands in a human chain that stretched for more than 400 miles, connecting the capitals of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia to protest the Soviet occupation. It was an extraordinary show of mass defiance in the Baltic region of the Soviet Union. 
Vilnius bears the scars of its long Soviet occupation. Volha Pavek is playing with her kids in a park. The linen statue here was hauled away years ago, but she points to an imposing building across the street. It's a KGB uh, building, and uh, now it's a museum. I was in every museum of KGB, <laughs> in Tallinn, in Tartu, um, and also in Budapest. Yeah, and it's the most authentic because uh, they closed it in, and uh, never changed anything. The names of those tortured by the Soviet security service in basement cells you can still visit are engraved on the building's outer wall. 75-year-old Laura Valeniena is reading a book in the park across the street. She remembers Soviet rule well. Everything was told what we have to do, how to have to live. There was no need to have your own ideas because they were given by the ones who were ruling the country at that moment. Volunteer Rima Uberkita says people in the Baltics don't blame other NATO countries for not believing them all these years about Russia. Some spoiled countries, like living better life, who never felt what Russians are, it's normal that they don't understand. You have to feel it. You have to know it. In its new strategic concept, NATO now designates Russia as its greatest threat, and it plans to scale up troop levels and training in Lithuania and every other country along its eastern flank. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Vilnius. The heat wave in the southwest is hitting at prime tourist season when millions of people are visiting the Grand Canyon and other national parks and recreation areas, and it's creating dangerous wildfire conditions too. David Condos with member station KUER is based in St. George, Utah, and he's here with us now to tell us more. Hello, David. Good morning. So you're in St. George, which is in the desert, not far from Las Vegas. I guess it's not really surprising that it's hot there in July, but is there something different about what's going on now? Yeah, so this heat wave is expected to really push things to the extreme. So the, the forecast from my area calls for daytime highs to be at or above 110 degrees for five straight days. So from the end of this week into early next week. And this weekend, uh, highs here in St. George will be near 115 degrees. And, and that could break some records that were set uh, a century ago, back in the 1920s. Uh, you know, I talked with John Wilson, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in Utah, and here's how he described it. It's definitely common to have these kind of streaks. What's a, a little less common, though, is just the impressive warmth, so the 115-degree territory for several days in a row. So, yeah, it'll, it'll still be very extreme, even for an area that is used to heat. What are the big concerns about the heat where you are? Well, you know, rescuing tourists is actually a big one. You know, it doesn't take long for this kind of heat to affect your health. And this area is home to some of America's most popular outdoor recreation areas like Grand Canyon, Lake Powell, Zion National Park. And uh, Zion, for example, got more than four and a half million visitors last year and, and majority of them in the summer. So there's a lot of extra people in the region this month beyond residents. And so, uh, you know, I talked with Jonathan Schaefer uh, with the park and he told me lots of visitors come from other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and they're often not acclimated to or prepared for the hot conditions here. It's common to get here and think that you're going to be able to recreate here the same way that you could in an area where you've come from that's cooler. The reality is that this can be an extreme place. 
And last year, Zion had to rescue around 120 people, many of them related to people being out in dangerous heat. So, you know, these types of temps can really put a strain on search and rescue operations in remote areas. So are the parks and recreation areas doing anything to try to keep visitors safe? And well, just making sure people are aware of the heat danger is the first thing. And so, you know, even before the current heat wave, uh, Zion posted signs around the park, making sure visitors know about how much water to have with them. And when it gets really hot, you know, they'll actually place rangers in person at popular trailheads as one last check to verbally make sure people are prepared for what they're getting into. So let, let me ask you about wildfires. This heat, doesn't it increase the risk for those as well? Yeah, so we actually had a wet winter here with a lot of snow, and, and that helped grasses and shrubs grow extra big. But with heat like this, they're drying out fast and becoming potential wildfire fuel. And, and you know, along with this heat, relative humidity will be in the single digits. And we've actually already had one fire started north of Arches National Park earlier this week. It closed down part of Interstate 70 for a bit and, and burned nearly 2,000 acres. So yeah, that's a big concern going forward as well. And unfortunately, you know, the monsoonal rains that typically arrive this time of year to cool things off uh, have been delayed. So it'll it'll be a while yet before we get some relief. So, David, before we let you go, you live there. Could you just describe what it's like? Yeah, I mean, it's hot, as you can imagine. It You know, it feels a bit like opening a hot oven when I open my door to go outside or, or the door of a hot car that's been outside. So it feels every degree of it. David Condos is a reporter with member station KUER. David, thank you. Thank you. U.S. Senators brought in the leaders of the PGA Tour for questioning over a proposed deal with the Saudi Arabia-backed golf league Live. As NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo reports, lawmakers push for more scrutiny on the details of the deal. Senators grilled the heads of PGA Tour, whose pending deal to do business with the Saudi league is raising antitrust and national security concerns. Members of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, including Senator Richard Blumenthal, questioned the new relationship. Sports are central to our society, to our culture, to our economy, to our way of life, to our self-image, and our image abroad. Critics have accused the Saudis of human rights violations, and Democrats said the golf agreement should include protections for players' free speech against the Saudi government. PGA leaders argued the deal, which is not complete, is in part needed to stop Liv from poaching players and bleeding revenue from PGA. Here is PGA board member Jimmy Dune. If Liv stays in existence and continues to take our top players from us, that will put pressure on our ability to retain those media revenues and those sponsorship revenues. They could decline in the future. That is the existential threat. But Blumenthal cautioned a deal doesn't end a threat from Liv. You're not out of the woods. They're going to continue to have this kind of bucket full of money they're going to continue to kind of wield the influence that they do. And whatever the good intentions and the rhetoric now, you still have to reach a deal. My hope is that you will resist those bucketful of money. Democrats have also asked the Justice Department to look into the merger for any potential antitrust violations. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Thanks for starting your day with us. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, which with much of the U.S. facing extreme weather, we'll talk with NASA's senior climate advisor about what to expect as global temperatures continue to rise. It's 20 minutes past 7. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Why are we conscious? Why aren't we just robots? Right now, nobody knows the answers to those questions. Well, 25 years ago, a neuroscientist and a philosopher made a bet that by now, science and philosophy would understand what makes and defines human consciousness. Want to guess who won? Find out on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The latest episode of WBUR's podcast, The Common, is out and just in time for another hot summer day. We take a look at the health of our state beaches. Host Daryl C. Murphy will talk with WBUR reporter Ali Jarmanning about that and about limited beach access. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Our weather forecast is calling for sunshine today, although some scattered showers possible in spots this afternoon. Temperatures will get into the low 90s today. Tonight, partly cloudy with lows around 70 and partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s. It is 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Sony Pictures Classics, presenting The Miracle Club, a new film starring Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney about four women who travel to Lourdes in search of a miracle, Starts Friday everywhere, only in theaters. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We're halfway through the year. You know what that means? Another year of thought-provoking, conversation-sparking TV has come to a close, which means that nominations for the 2023 Emmys will be announced later today. Whenever I stay at a White Lotus, I always have a memorable time. Always. Welcome to the White Lotus in Sicily. I have every intention of turning this into a respectable place of business. Eventually. I love Montana, but I'm doing this for our family. We need to talk. They will fight you. They will fight you dirty. Is there any other way? White Lotus, The Bear, and Yellowstone. They're just some of the big contenders expecting to vie for this year's Emmy Awards. But as critic and host Linda Holmes writes in her new column, this is, and this is a quote, a very strange year. It just is, end quote. Joining me now is one of the hosts of Pop Culture Happy Hour, Linda Holmes, and she's with us now to tell us more. Hello. Hi, Michelle. So what makes this such a strange year? Well, Hollywood is in the middle of two enormous labor disputes right now. The Writers Guild has been on strike since May. There's no sign of progress. The Screen Actors Guild contract expires actually at midnight tonight. If those guilds both wind up on strike, everything will grind to a halt, including actually Emmy campaigning. 
the real possibility has to be said of a dual strike in Hollywood. I'm just wondering what the campaign season is going to be like, you know, writers and actors on strike, layoffs, reductions across most of the networks. So in that environment, does it still seem like the Emmys matter? Well, to me, you know, the biggest reason why the Emmys matter is that they can be a boost for good creators. Uh, a great recent example of that would be Quinta Brunson, whose show Abbott Elementary won a couple of Emmys last year, will probably win a couple more this year. And if that strengthens the hand of somebody who is making a terrific show, then that always matters. But that's pragmatic, I think, more than anything else. All right. Well, so with that being said, let's, shall we just talk about the big categories? Yeah. Okay. Let's start with best drama. So in this category, there are some shoe-ins, Succession on HBO, The Crown on Netflix. But I think there is room for new shows here. One likely one is probably The Last of Us, which is the HBO video game adaptation. Maybe Andor, which is a Star Wars universe show on Disney+. Plus. Or maybe, this is my most intriguing possibility, is that we'll see a nomination for Yellowstone, which is a hugely popular nighttime soap that's never been nominated before. I think it would be very interesting to see that get a nomination. Okay, let's talk about the comedy category. You mentioned Quinta Brunson. Now, Ted Lasso has been a big Emmy's favorite. What are you thinking about? What are the breakouts and the likely nominees in that category? Yeah, you will see some repeat nominees again. Um, Abbott Elementary, I'm sure. Ted Lasso, I suspect. Some others that are familiar. I think The Bear will be nominated. That's a comedy drama on Hulu about a chef who takes over his family's sandwich shop. But one that I'm curious about is Jury Duty, which is a kind of reality improv hybrid from Freevee, which is Amazon's ad-supported streaming service. Um, jury Duty follows a guy named Ronald who thinks he's actually on Jury Duty, but everybody else is an actor. So it's a little bit hard to explain, but I wanna play you a clip where the movie actor, James Marsden, who's playing a very vain and silly version of himself, is trying to get out of jury duty by claiming his fame is a big distraction to Ronald, who <laughs> remember is the only person here who's not in on the oh, Okay. <laughs> I feel like there's a chance that I might be an unwelcome uh, distraction. Why is that, sir? I'm a recognizable public figure. Respectfully. I don't recognize you. <laughs> oh my gosh, that sounds funny. <laughs> yeah, so that's the judge telling him that he does not recognize him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a fun show that a lot of people really liked. And I would not be surprised if that grabbed a nomination or two. All right. Well, that is Pop Culture Happy Hour host, Linda Holmes. Linda, thank you so much. Thank you, Michelle. Aretha Franklin died in 2018, but her children have been locked in a long legal battle over her fortune since. Now, yesterday, though, a Michigan probate court decided that a four-page handwritten document can legally be considered her last will and testament. As WDET's Ryan Patrick Hooper reports, the will was found in a spiral notebook in Aretha Franklin's couch. Yeah! The Queen of Souls Cadillac, two Cadillacs to be exact, are now set to be passed down to her youngest son, Kelf Franklin. Her estate is valued at about $18 million, according to her lawyers. Outside the courtroom, Kelf Franklin said the decision was a relief. We just want to exhale right now. It's been a long five years for my family, my children. His children, Aretha's only grandkids, also celebrated the decision. Here's 28-year-old Jordan Franklin. We're just here in the name of our grandmother and her last wishes. And, you know, whatever that 
would have been, whether it was split up equally, whether it was the 2014 will, the 2010 will. It's about her last wishes, and that's what we're happy about today. The trial centered around two wills and the question of which one Aretha wanted to be honored. One, dated 2010, was found in an old cabinet in her suburban Detroit home. That one favored her son, Ted White Jr. The other one from 2014 was found in a couch where Aretha often slept. That one gave more assets to her other son, Kalf. But a jury on Tuesday put the confusing issue to rest. I think that it's a great thing. Kelf Franklin feels that his mother's final wishes have finally been fulfilled. The jury decided the 2014 will, in his favor, is the right one. His lawyers argued that it may have been found in a couch, but it's still valid and it's more recent. I think that uh, she would be very happy and that she's proud right now that her wishes have been adhered to. The other brother, Ted White Jr., left the courtroom quickly after the decision. He lost this battle, but he'll still inherit a third of his mother's music royalties that continue to make money. As one lawyer speculated, people will be listening to Aretha for hundreds of years. For NPR News, I'm Ryan Patrick Hooper in Detroit. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Today's top stories are just ahead. And at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, new numbers out this morning are expected to show the inflation rate in June was just over 3 percent. And that's a big improvement from this time last year. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by New England Innovation Academy in Marlboro. Day and boarding school for grades 6 to 12. Free Innovation Studio Workshop, July 17th, neiacademy.org. And Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100. Now on view, icaboston.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky continues to press members of NATO to invite his country to join the alliance, NATO is wrapping up its latest summit in Lithuania today. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley says Zelensky is attending the talks in Vilnius. He tweeted before arriving that NATO's failure to set up a timeline was absurd. Zelensky has always said that Ukraine doesn't have time. So he's clearly peaked. He wants something more concrete. NATO says Ukraine can join the alliance once the allies agree and certain conditions are met. President Biden is at the summit. The Pentagon is criticizing Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama for continuing to block the nominations of more than 250 senior U.S. military officers. The senator says the Defense Department policy that pays for a service member to travel out of state to receive reproductive care, including abortion, was implemented without congressional authorization. Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada is urging Tuberville to end his protest. This extreme anti-choice agenda, it's jeopardizing our national security in order to impose restrictions on our service members' reproductive freedoms. Enough is enough. We need to fill these critical roles. The nominations include Air Force General C.Q. Brown to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell wants more action against ghost guns in the state. Ghost guns are guns without serial numbers. State officials say the use of those guns has gone up sharply in the past few years. Campbell says new laws might be needed to crack down on the weapons. Some regulations could include making it illegal to possess the parts used to build guns. State lawmakers are considering making it easier for striking workers to get unemployment benefits. The bill would help employees in labor disputes receive health coverage while they're off the job. People who are out of work for 30 days or more during a labor dispute would be eligible. State Senator Paul Feeney, a Democrat from Foxborough, introduced the legislation yesterday. The current laws, though perhaps not intended to do so, allow the employer to hold all the cards. The result of that is that a corporation or employer in the middle of often contentious collective bargaining can weaponize uncertain unemployment benefits to coerce action. A similar bill died in the Senate last year. A support group plans to create housing for veterans on Martha's Vineyard. The Cape and Islands Veterans Outreach Center will build the first neighborhood of rentals for veterans on the vineyard. The group tells the Cape Cod Times the development will include 12 one-bedroom apartments. Veterans making less than 80 percent of the area's median income will be eligible to live there. The project's expected to be completed in two years. A swarm of venomous Portuguese man-of-war has turned up on some beaches in Rhode Island. The jellyfish-like creatures with long tentacles and a painful sting have washed up on Scarborough, Roger Wheeler, and East Matunic state beaches this week. State experts are flying purple flags on the affected beaches to warn people. They say swimmers should notify lifeguards if they see a Portuguese man-of-war. The creatures look like small balloons floating on top of the water. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. In sports, Red Sox closer Kenley Jansen struck out the only battery faced in last night's Major League All-Star Game in Seattle. Jansen was the only Boston representative on the American League squad. The National League won the game 3-2. to two. Our weather forecast, sunshine today. In some spots, there might be scattered showers this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 90s today. Tonight, partly cloudy with lows around 70 degrees. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs in the 80s. It is 75 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Zoom, Zoom One is designed for AI-powered collaboration across phone, video, messaging, whiteboards, and work apps, keeping global teams connected. One platform to connect, Zoom One. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. We're seeing some wild weather across the U.S. this week, from scorching temperatures in the southwest to catastrophic flooding in the northeast. NASA chief scientist and senior climate advisor Kate Calvin is closely watching these weather events. And I asked her if this is our new normal. 
We are seeing increases in temperature over time. Um, so 2022 is about two degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than the late 19th century average. And what we know from science is that warming is going to continue. How much warmer it gets depends on actions taken and how much emissions there are in the future. And if climate change, I mean, continues at the pace that we're observing right now, I mean, what kinds of weather events might we experience maybe a decade or two decades from now? Are we talking about a disaster movie from Hollywood? Well, so how much future warming we experience depends on future emissions. So we know that the warming we've experienced up until now is driven by greenhouse gas emissions from human activity. There's a large community of people that look at what future climate might look like, and they look at very different warming levels. Everything from looking at what if we were to keep warming around 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit and going up above that. And what you see from that is that impacts rise with warming. And so how much more impacts we experience depends on how much more warming we experience. How much more warming we see in the future depends on future emissions. You know, hotter temperatures and erosion on coastlines are stuff that we see in the news all the time, things that are tangible that we experience. What are some things that are related to climate change, Kate, that maybe we aren't thinking about quite yet? Things like maybe diseases or migration of people around the world. So one of the things, you know, a lot of ecosystems and animal species, they're adapted to a particular climate and even small changes in warming can change their geographic extent um, or how they function. And so I think thinking about things like biodiversity and ecosystems and some of that carries with it implications for human in terms of like human health um, and other factors. And so thinking about that, I think we often don't always think about the fact that a small change in temperature can affect the way an ecosystem or species functions. Kate, where at all do you see any hope? I think we know more about our planet than we ever have. There are scientists and engineers all around the world that are learning more every day. We're able to provide that information publicly. And we have options available today that can help us respond to climate change, whether that's options available to help reduce emissions or adapt the changes we experience. Um, those all exist now. You're NASA's chief scientist and climate advisor. If someone came up to you and said, what's the one thing, Kate, that I could do to try and contribute to helping things, what would you tell them? That is a difficult question because everyone's situation is different. So we live in different places. We work in different places. The impacts that we're experiencing might be different. The options that are available to us might be different. And so what science can provide is information about those options. So we can you know, tell you about the link between emissions and climate. We can tell you which options are available to reduce emissions, things like renewable energy or um, ways of traveling. You know, Kate, there was a time when if you told someone that you work for NASA, they think, oh, you're looking up at the stars or that's where you're headed toward the stars. Uh, but in this case, NASA is looking down at our planet. Um, how do you describe that in terms of what you do and what you're trying to understand about uh, climate change in the globe? So we do explore the universe. We, you know, send crewed missions into outer space to explore and to learn about our solar system. But part of what we do is in those missions, you know, we do learn. We learn a lot about Earth from studying other planets. We also develop technologies and innovate that can help as we're exploring, but also help us here on Earth. So even though we look out into the universe, we also look back at Earth. And we've been doing satellite missions that observe the Earth for more than 50 years. And that gives us a really tremendous resource because these satellites, we can look at different things from space, from vegetation to clouds and precipitation, carbon dioxide. So we can see both what happens and how it's changed over time. Kate Calvin is NASA's chief scientist and climate advisor. Kate, thanks. Thank you so much for having me.
These days, vending machines provide more than just snacks and drinks. Some offer life-saving supplies like Narcan. That's the brand name for a treatment to reverse an opioid overdose. And increasingly, you can find supplies like that in public places such as health centers, libraries, and a police station in a Milwaukee suburb. Eddie Morales from member station WUWM has the story. Enter the Greenfield, Wisconsin Police Department, and just a few steps to the right in the foyer is a vending machine. Right now we have Narcan, uh, we have Deterra bags. Lindsay Foos is the public health specialist in Greenfield. Deterra bags are a type of harm reduction um, where you can put pills, patches, or liquids in there. You mix it with water and it deactivates those uh, medications. Foos says there's a no questions asked approach when people use the machine. At the end of the day, these are here to save lives. These are here to support individuals. We are not here to judge or anything of that nature. It was just a few months ago that Milwaukee County officials gathered to unveil the city's first harm reduction vending machine. So I'm going to sign the bill right, right now. Milwaukee County will spend $11 million in all on projects to reduce drug overdosing. That includes the purchase of 25 vending machines that provide free nasal Narcan, fentanyl test strips, and more. It's all part of the effort to beat back a rising number of overdose deaths in the country. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there were more than 80,000 opioid-related deaths in the U.S. in 2021. In Wisconsin, there were more than 1,400 that year. At the police station in Greenfield, over 180 boxes of Narcan and more than 1,000 fentanyl test strips have been dispensed so far. If I think back to when I was actively using, I would be very hesitant to think maybe somebody was tracking my use of these machines. That's China Darrington. She's the Director of Advocacy and Public Policy at Thrive Peer Recovery Services in Ohio. Darrington is also in long-term recovery. She says reducing deaths requires a public health approach, even if people might be cautious about visiting a police station for resources. So the fact that they're being utilized and then once people use them and they realize they're safe to use, they easily come back and word spreads amongst that community. The next step is maybe you'll be comfortable enough to actually talk with the human about what your options are at that point, too. Darrington says it's important to treat people with dignity and respect by providing them a safe place to retrieve life-saving supplies. That's why Greenfield chose a police department as its pilot location for the machine. It's an effort to decrease the stigma of getting help. For NPR News, I'm Eddie Morales in Milwaukee. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, critic Bob Mondello has a review of Tom Cruise's latest film, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It's the seventh movie in the Mission Impossible franchise. To listen to Bob's review, you can stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or listen to us on the radio. This is NPR News. And you're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we'll have the latest on the catastrophic flooding in Vermont. Our weather forecast says sunshine today, although some areas may see a scattered shower to this afternoon. Temperatures will rise into the low 90s today. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy, lows around 70 degrees. Partly sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the 80s. And looks like there's a chance of showers every day into next week, starting on Friday. It is 76 degrees. 
in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by schooner Grace Bailey. You can sail the coast of Maine with Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Good Place actor Mark Evan Jackson. Learn more at sailgracebailey.com. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at goendlessenergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. In business news, more than two-thirds of Boston-area business people say the cost of housing, taxes, and commuting times are much worse in Massachusetts compared with other states. That's according to a new poll from the Boston Business Journal in partnership with Seven Letter Insight. The respondents also said those factors are affecting how they're planning for the future. Nearly half said they'll consider moving to lower tax states such as New Hampshire or Florida. Bank of America America, largest bank in Massachusetts, will pay $250 million to settle claims that it double-charged customers for overdraft fees. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau says the bank also withheld credit card bonuses and opened accounts without customer consent. Bank of America has said it voluntarily reduced overdraft fees last year. The longtime CEO of Boston-based Easy Cater is stepping down. Stefania Millette helped found the online meal service back in 2007. Former Amazon and Lyft executive Ashwin Raj will take over as Easy Cater CEO next month. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. Americans have been wrestling with high inflation for more than a couple of years now. Like many people, Alexandra Kloster is getting tired of prices for everything going up, everything from rent to groceries and gas. It's just has been really difficult to try to raise a family and to get ahead. It feels like two step forwards and one step back. Closter and her family, along with the rest of us, may finally be getting a breather. When the government's cost of living report for June comes out this morning, it's expected to show an annual inflation rate of around 3 percent. That would be the lowest since the spring of 2021. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now with a preview of today's report. Scott, uh, good news to hear that inflation is coming down because high prices have been really tough to budget for. Well, how are folks making do? Well, people are definitely looking for ways to economize. Eh? We've heard from a lot of people who've adjusted their grocery buying habits, uh, maybe cut back on entertainment expenses. A closer told me she's turned to a secondhand store to find shoes and blue jeans for her two growing children. It is summertime, though. Many people are still eager for a getaway. Closer, who works in a medical office, and her husband, who's a full-time student, are spending this week at a cabin in northern Wisconsin. She says it's nice to get out of their cramped apartment in Milwaukee, but they are still watching their pennies. We're definitely not doing as much going to town or doing the tourist things. We're just trying to find free things to do, like walking, fishing. I'm trying to keep my kids entertained, but also trying to keep our budget low. 
some good news. Forecasters think we may see a break in some travel costs, things like airfares and hotel rooms. Uh, even though there's a lot of demand for summer travel, airline capacity has pretty much caught up now, which is very different than where we were last summer. Uh, jet fuel prices are also down, so that's helping as well. Uh, where else are we seeing uh, a break in inflation? Gasoline prices have certainly come down a lot from this time last year. Of course, last year, gasoline hit a record high uh, in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Grocery prices have also eased up a little bit as supply chains have normalized. We've talked in the past about egg prices, which took off and then came back to earth. Uh, we'll see what happens with rent in today's numbers. You know, We know that new leases being signed now are generally showing smaller rent increases than has been the case in the past. And over time, that filters into the government's cost of living uh, statistics, but it doesn't happen right away. All right, Scott, so I'm going to do a little if this, then that. If inflation is cooling off, does that mean the Fed will stop raising rates? Not just yet. Uh, the Fed is still expected to raise interest rates at least once more, maybe twice. Uh, even at around 3%, inflation still above the Fed's target, which is 2%. And if you strip out food and energy prices, which bounce up and down a lot, uh, so-called core inflation is still up around 5%. So there's still a ways to go. Uh, but Mark Hamrick, who is a senior economic analyst at Bankrate, says inflation is moving in the right direction, uh, especially compared to the 9-plus percent rate we saw this time last year. We are not uh, yet at the promised land where the Federal Reserve can say mission accomplished, that that 2% target has not only been met but has been sustained. But we are surely on the journey. Still, Fed policymakers think it could take another couple of years to get that back down to 2%. So, in other words, the last mile could be slow going. Uh, earlier this week, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York released a survey that shows people are feeling a little better about inflation in the short run. Uh, but they also think inflation is still going to be up around 3% five years from now. So inflation might be a less urgent problem than it used to be, but it's being seen as kind of a chronic irritant that was going to be with us for a while. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks a lot, Scott. You're welcome. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes from now, a support group at a woman's prison in Minnesota that helps mothers who have lost parental rights. It's 10 minutes before 8. The Sumner Tunnel is closed through the end of August. So if you're trying to get from East Boston or Logan Airport to downtown, state officials say please don't drive. The fastest, cheapest, and most reliable way in and out of Boston during this time period is going to, without a doubt, be public transportation. We are providing free and discounted Blue Line, commuter rail, bus, and ferry service. For tips on how to get around the summer Sumner shutdown, visit WBUR.org and stay tuned to WBUR for updates. And here's a look at some of the top stories WBUR is following this Wednesday morning. President Biden will meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today following NATO's decision to delay the country joining the alliance. More rain expected in Vermont as areas of that state deal with historic flooding. And Iowa lawmakers passed a new law limiting abortions at six weeks. They made that decision during a special session last night. You can stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
Our weather forecast, sunny today, a few scattered showers possible this afternoon. Temperatures will be in the low 90s today. Tonight should be partly cloudy with lows around 70 and partly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s. It is 76 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. After nearly a decade, the civil war in Yemen is finally slowing down. But people will be living with the consequences for years to come. Nowhere is that more apparent than in the need for prosthetics for thousands of people injured by landmines and unexploded ordnance. NPR's Fatma Tanis went to a prosthetics clinic in Yemen, where she spoke with some of the youngest and most visible victims of the conflict. The waiting room is crammed at this prosthetic center, one of two in the city of Taiz. Soldiers, women and children with amputations squeeze by to get to their appointments. 12-year-old Shema Ali Ahmed is here with her father for her monthly physical therapy. It's so crowded that her doctor, Muna Hassan, struggles to find a comfortable place for them to start. We need a comfortable place. We can go there. Finally, they find an empty set of parallel bars in a corner. We have to start from a parallel bar. Shema walks swiftly up and down, first holding on to the bars, then without touching them. Her gait is quite uneven because prosthetics with joints at the knee aren't available here. She tells me about the night she lost her leg in 2017 when she was just six years old. She was playing outside with friends at night when they came across an unexploded rocket. Suddenly, I saw something flash. At that time, I didn't even know what an explosion was. Then I found myself at the hospital the next day with my mom, and she told me that my leg was gone from my upper thigh. Shema says she has worked hard to get better, even as the war raged in this frontline city. I still feel scared when I am outdoors, but try to be calm. It's better now. We used to constantly hear the sounds of missiles or gunfire. Now it's rare. She hopes that the international community can help bring the war to an end so that she can be a women's rights lawyer and work to rebuild her country that sank into civil war in 2014. That was when the Iran-backed Houthi militia overthrew the government, backed by Saudi Arabia, and sparked the civil war. Houthi rockets and Saudi airstrikes have killed many Yemenis, and experts say there are about 2 million landmines, mostly laid by the Houthis, along with unexploded ordnance, especially here in Taiz. The fact that the war is slowing down does not really say that the needs are slowing down as well. That's Maryam Adnan, a child protection specialist with Save the Children. I reached her from her base in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen that is now under Houthi control. She says children are particularly vulnerable as they play outside and walk to school. Even as there was a truce for much of last year, children were killed or injured by mines on average every two days. That's the highest rate in five years. We were expecting during the truce that the numbers will decrease 
but for children injured by landmines, the, the numbers were increasing massively, unfortunately, during 2022. And with a collapsed health system and a severe shortage in humanitarian aid funding, according to the United Nations, it's gotten much harder to provide the life-saving help that victims need. Adnan says children are often dying because they can't get help. And it's devastating for aid workers like her. Sometimes we feel that we are paralyzed because we cannot provide the support. And it's not on us. It is because of lack of funding. Back at the prosthetic center, the director, Dr. Mansour Alwazi, gives me a tour of the workshop where they mold the bulky prosthetics for their patients. This is where you make the prosthetics. Last year, I think we treat more than 400 cases. That's 400 new cases. Then there are thousands of victims from earlier in the war who continue to need fittings, replacements, and therapy. It's not like operation you will do it and send patient away. The patient has to come every three months, every four months, uh, the children every six months, every one year. It's very important and sensitive in this time. As we step out of the workshop back into the treatment center, there are more patients streaming in. Among them is a mother with her three-year-old son who lost his leg in a mine explosion this year and now wears a prosthetic leg. His eyes downcast, the child slowly tries to walk, clutching tightly to his mother's hand. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Taiz, Yemen. All right, now to NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg, who has the backstory on a 19th century masterpiece that's on display at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. It's Whistler's Mother, painted by James Abbott McNeil Whistler in 1871. An American, he was living in London. His mother... He adored his mother. ...lived with him. He even bumped his mistress out to make room for mom in his house. Philadelphia curator Jennifer Thompson says Mrs. Whistler scolded James for his wild bohemian ways and naughty escapades. James didn't mind. He was busy making art and getting admired. Jennifer Thompson quotes a well-known 19th century poet, playwright, and wits comment on the great attention-loving painter. Oscar Wilde would famously say of him that Whistler spelled art with a capital I. Museum director Sasha Souter says Mother Whistler, on the other hand, looked so modest and unassuming in profile on canvas. It's almost a moment frozen in time. She wears a black morning dress, a white cap, and her hands are quietly folded on her lap. Why is she sitting? Well, apparently she originally stood, and then she found it was very difficult to hold that pose. She was 67 and not that well. It was an accident, her posing that day. A model couldn't come. Son James wanted to get to work. His loving mother agreed to do it. It's not a portrait. For him, it's an experiment with color in these very subtle tones. Somber colors, grays, blacks, a dash of pink on her skin. The title is Arrangement in Black and Gray, number one. Whistler's subtitle is Portrait of the Artist's Mother. Anna Whistler looks so severe, austere, but she's said to have been charming, loved by children and her family. And this picture of her at the Philadelphia Museum of Art until the end of October is one of the best-known paintings in the world. Is it a masterpiece? My sources had careful answers. Me too. We all have mothers. We're all getting older. The painting is timeless. 
And masterpieces, like mothers, are in the eyes of the beholder. I'm Susan Stamberg, Washington, D.C. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Our weather forecast is calling for sunshine today, maybe a few scattered showers this afternoon. Highs in the 90s. Tonight should be partly cloudy. Lows near 70. Sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s. 76 degrees in Boston coming up on 8 o'clock. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Children's Hospital, thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. bostonchildrens.org slash answers. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden is expected to meet with Ukraine's president at the NATO summit in Lithuania today. It's Wednesday, July 12th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, NATO leaders have said Ukraine can join the alliance under certain conditions. Also, we'll have the latest this hour on the catastrophic flooding in Vermont. Flooding here is at least the worst we've seen since 1992, and city officials say that Montpelier is in uncharted territory with this event. Also, the penalties imposed on Bank of America for illegal business practices and a support group at a woman's prison in Minnesota that helps mothers who've lost parental rights. I feel like if it wasn't for this group, I might not have been where I needed to be when this happened. Forecast says sunny today, a few showers this afternoon, highs in the 90s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. NATO allies say they'll outline security guarantees to help Ukraine defend itself and deter future Russian attacks. NATO leaders are in Lithuania for the second day of their annual summit. NPR's Eleanor Beersley reports the security guarantees to Ukraine fall short of an invitation to join NATO. The group of 31 allied countries says it will invite Ukraine to join NATO when the time and conditions are right. But Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has always said Ukraine does not have time. Nicholas Tenzer, who is a senior fellow at D.C.-based Center for European Policy Analysis, agrees. The problem is we cannot afford neither for the Ukrainians nor for ourselves. That this war lasts uh, one year, two years, three more years. Tenzer says Ukrainians would die and the legitimacy of the West would be seriously dented. He says Putin will continue destroying Ukraine until the West gives Ukraine the means to radically defeat Russia. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Vilnius. A new report on inflation out this morning is expected to show the smallest cost of living increase in more than two years. But as NPR's Scott Horsley reports, that's not likely to stop the Federal Reserve from raising interest rates. Forecasters think today's report will show the annual inflation rate falling to just over 3 percent in June. That's down from 4 percent a month ago and more than 9 percent this time last year. 
Inflation has cooled steadily since hitting a four-decade high last summer, but prices are still climbing faster than the Federal Reserve would like. And while the cost of groceries and gasoline has eased, so-called core inflation, which strips out those volatile elements, has shown less improvement. Analysts expect the central bank to raise interest rates by another quarter percentage point in two weeks in an effort to curb demand and bring prices under control. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Iowa state legislature has passed a bill outlawing most abortions. The vote was supported only by Republicans who control both chambers. If Iowa physicians disregard the law, discipline would be left up to Iowa's Board of Medicine. Iowa Republican State Senator Amy Sinclair says the abortion ban is not intended to punish doctors. There is no criminal penalty under this bill considered but a licensed physician must follow Iowa law. The controversial legislation passed in a single day. Democratic State Representative Jennifer Confirst vehemently objected. This whole day is an exercise in just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's incredibly disappointing that we are rushing this through. Iowa Republican Governor Kim Reynolds says she will sign the bill by Friday. Very dangerous heat persists in the south and west of the country today. Forecasters warn heat indexes could soar well above 100 degrees from California to Florida. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Although some Massachusetts hospitals have been letting homeless families stay overnight as they try to access the state-run family shelter system, Boston Medical Center is saying no more. It's sending families elsewhere. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, the hospital and its clinicians are urging the state to do more. Citing safety concerns, Boston Medical Center officials are giving the parents and children free transportation to relatives or churches. Some families with no local connections have gone to Logan Airport to wait overnight until state offices and intake centers open. Karen Cullen is a nurse midwife at BMC and joined a rally at Boston Commons calling for the Healy administration to take action. We're looking for a state of emergency to be declared so it can open up funding that may not otherwise be available. So hotels in our area, you know, near the hospital could open up floors. A spokesperson for the governor says officials are evaluating the options. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Governor Healy will be in western Massachusetts today to survey damage from this week's flooding. The state emergency management agency says right now there are no requests for damage assessments from flooding. The rescue team called Massachusetts Task Force One is in Vermont helping with cleanup from the catastrophic flooding there. On Beacon Hill today, state lawmakers will discuss how to heat and cool buildings in the future. Several bills tied to decarbonization will be the focus of a legislative hearing. State Senator Cynthia Stone Cream has proposed what she calls the Clean Heat Act. Its objective is to facilitate the transition from gas to cleaner forms of heating and cooling. It directs funding from gas infrastructure projects to projects involving things like network geothermal, ESOS, heat pumps. And it requires gas companies to submit plans to change their business models from delivering gas to delivering clean forms of thermal energy. Cream says her proposal also creates a fund to ensure that low-income communities benefit from the transition. People in South Boston will not be able to escape the summer heat at L Street Beach. Access to 
to the beach was closed during the $31 million renovation at the Curley Center. The center reopened last month, but the Boston Herald reports that the beach is still closed because the city's Conservation Commission still needs to sign off on a beach operation plan. Some city councilors are calling for an emergency hearing to expedite the beach opening. Boston kicks off its golf course summer concert series tonight. Performances will be held on the patios of the city's two public courses. Parks and Recreation Department spokeswoman Liz Sullivan says most of the acts are local and they have a variety of musical styles. They're each singer-songwriters or a small trio. It ranges from folk, pop, rock, reggae, blues, R&B, soul, funk. It's really accessible. All all the songs are going to be songs that you've probably heard before, and they're going to get your feet tapping and get you out of your seat. Tonight's concert is at the William Devine Golf Course at Franklin Park. The time is seven minutes past eight. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. In sports, the New England Revolution host Atlanta United FC in Foxborough tonight, and pitcher Kenley Jansen was the only member of the Red Sox in last night's All-Star Game in Seattle, and he struck out the only batter he faced in the eighth inning. The National League still beat the American League 3-2. to two. Our weather forecast, sunshine today, a few scattered showers in spots this afternoon. Highs will be in the low 90s today. Tonight, a few clouds, lows around 70 degrees. And tomorrow, partly sunny, highs in the 80s. Looks like clouds mixing with a chance of showers starting Friday and continuing every day into early next week. It's 76 degrees in Boston. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org beachbooks. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, we're going to speak with the mayor of Montpelier, Vermont, about the historic floods that swept through his city's downtown yesterday. We'll also hear about how they're trying to recover. First, though, Richard Haas has served in the White House, the Pentagon, and the State Department. He advised then-Secretary of State Colin Powell on the Iraq War. Later, Haas was a U.S. coordinator for Afghanistan. Now he's confirming that back in May, he was part of a group that met independently with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to talk about Ukraine. Everybody understands that individuals such as myself do not speak for the government. Everybody understands these are conversations, not negotiations. I also you know, did my best to keep our own government informed. I don't think it was dangerous. I think there's a long tradition of of helpful uh, conversation, interaction, engagement by third parties. Haas just stepped down after 20 years leading the Council on Foreign Relations. I asked him what it will take to end Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Wars only end when both sides uh, decide that they are better off uh, with a ceasefire or an armistice or a peace than they are continuing the war. It only takes one country to start a war. In this case, it was Russia but it will take both sides to to end it. And Russia will have to decide it can live, as will Ukraine, with whatever the situation is on the the battlefield, because ultimately the negotiating table will reflect the battlefield. And right now, 
The reason the war is continuing is each side is, believes it is better off uh, with the passage of time. Ukraine believes it will regain more territory. Russia believes that Western support for Ukraine will fade. So if you remember at the beginning, their goal was to essentially eradicate Ukraine as a sovereign, independent country. So both sides have to come to the conclusion that more fighting will not serve their interests. And however distasteful, that compromise at the negotiating table would leave them better off than continued fighting. President Biden is uh, at the NATO summit in Lithuania, and he says it would be premature to bring Ukraine into the alliance. Uh, Do you think that NATO should admit Ukraine right away? I do not. It would be premature. It would get NATO, all 31 countries, or 32 if you include Sweden, uh, involved in a war with Russia, which would be uh, unbelievably dangerous, could escalate to, to, to nuclear weapons. It's also not clear what NATO would be committing itself to. If you were reinventing NATO, would it still be a defense alliance? Well, NATO uh, is a defensive alliance, and that is at its core. On the other hand, NATO also has the ability to act, quote unquote, out of area. So not simply defensively in Europe, but can take undertake other missions as it has over the last few decades. And I also think that Europeans and Americans need to think about other related issues, what Europe's prepared to do in the context, say, of a U.S.-Chinese conflict in the in the Indo-Pacific, what they're prepared to do to inc- increase their manufacturing capability of defense articles. So there's many areas in which the, the NATO members need to do more. When it comes to China and the United States' relationship with China, um, very frayed right now, what are the odds uh, that Taiwan possibly becomes the next Ukraine? Uh, It's nothing we can control. China clearly has aspirations, and that's essentially up to the leadership of China, whether they are going to take the risks and potentially pay the costs of coercion or aggression against Taiwan. We've avoided that now for close to half a century. And the question is whether we uh, whether diplomacy can continue to finesse this. But. Yeah, I don't have a a crystal ball, and that's why the United States, Taiwan, Japan, and others are right to prepare for possible um, armed contingencies. Again, uh, we can't shape Chinese dreams. What we can do is shape their decisions, and we ought to persuade them that, however imperfect from their point of view, the status quo or something close to the status quo is far preferable to an alternative in which they would use military force. Dr. Haas, if it's okay, I, I'd love to get a lightning round of uh, questions with you. Just your first thoughts on on a list of questions that I would bring up just to know where your head is at right now, considering the 20 years you've just wrapped up as president of the Council on Foreign Relations. Is that okay? Yes, sir. All right. Can you look 20 years into the future and tell me who are the superpowers of the world in 20 years? Well, at the moment, you'd have to say the two most likely uh, great powers of the future would be the United States and China. But we may also be entering an era where the ability of any country, no matter how great, to, to dominate is, is diminished. What does international trade look like in 20 years? I think there'll be a lot of international trade in in 20 years. You just won't have global trade agreements. You'll have a lot of bilateral and regional agreements. But I think the the era of negotiating these grand international arrangements is, is over. Will world leaders mitigate climate change? If there's major progress realized against climate change, I think it's much more likely to come because of technology 
say, breakthroughs on something like batteries or breakthroughs in, in other green technologies or the ability to capture carbon. I simply do not believe collective diplomatic action will accomplish much, if anything. Who or what is the biggest threat to peace? Well, what worries me right now as much of anything as our, the, the, the domestic disarray within the United States. The world has been, uh, by historical standards, remarkably stable for 75 years, in large part because the United States played a, an outsized role during World War II, after World War II, and after the end of the Cold War. And the question is, given our domestic polarization, our divisions, whether we will have the domestic unity, the domestic bandwidth to continue to play that role. I'm not so sure. The only thing I am sure is without the United States playing an outsized role in the world, the world will become a far more dangerous place. Richard Haas was a longtime diplomat and White House advisor. He's now President Emeritus of the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Haas, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Waters are finally receding in Montpelier, Vermont, Vermont state capital, after historic levels of flooding overwhelmed the city's downtown yesterday. Officials say waters exceeded the level seen in 2011 during Tropical Storm Irene, and climate scientists say this could be the new normal. But we wanted to hear more about conditions right now, so we've called the mayor of Montpelier, Jack McCullough, and he's with us now. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Thanks for taking the time. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So, so just tell us what you're seeing right now in your city. Well, we, we had some very encouraging news overnight. The uh, water has receded and we're not, the streets downtown are not uh, filled with water the way they were all day yesterday. And so what we have left is what the flood left behind. Hmm. So the streets are filled with mud and silt. And so removing that is going to be the first order of business. I understand that the fire department, the police department, and City Hall were all flooded. Has that made it harder to respond to this? It has, although we have an emergency operations center at our city water plant, which is on higher ground, and so we are maintaining full operations up there. I was there with the assistant city manager and uh, and other staff uh, yesterday afternoon, and uh, Things are going as well as we could hope and expect at that location. Hmm. Well, speaking of water, is the city still advising residents to boil water? We still have the boil water notice on. And uh, another thing we've done is that we've initiated a, a parking ban on the two main streets, State Street and Main Street, so that the uh, Department of Public Works can begin clearing the streets. And, and what about the what about the streets, uh, the highways? Are people, if they need to evacuate, can they do so? All the, all the streets in the city and and in the surrounding areas are open now, and so people who need to go somewhere can get out of town mm-hmm. or into town too. All right. Well, sounds encouraging. So, so remember, we were following updates yesterday on the status of the Wrightsville Dam. A nearby reservoir was threatening to overwhelm the dam on Tuesday, and there was some concern that that could exacerbate the flooding downtown. I know you were just telling us that the waters have receded, but can you just, do you know what's the status of the dam right now? I haven't seen the latest dam levels. I think that we're very concerned, and the water never overtopped the dam which was very good. So I think that we're 
We're feeling pretty good about the dam right now. Our flood gauge measures in the city are way down, which is very good. The highest level we ever got to was 21.3 feet, and it's down now to around 12 feet. So that's a huge improvement. Okay, so we have about a minute left. So what what support are you getting for your kind of recovery efforts, and, and what else might you need? Well, we are very pleased. The president issued an emergency or disaster declaration already. I, uh, on yesterday, yesterday, I spoke to our uh, Senator Peter Welch, and he is committed to working with Senator Sanders and with the Republicans in the Senate to get the funding we're going to need. I also talked to uh, our Representative Becca Ballant about getting aid to us. We have people coming out from all over the place offering to volunteer to help with the cleanup. And uh, so it's going to take money. It's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take time. And uh, but I'm confident we will be back as a thriving city. Well, that's Jack McCullough. He's the mayor of Montpelier, Vermont. Mr. Mayor, I know you have a lot on your plate. I'm sure you need some rest. So thanks so much for talking to us for a few minutes. And I hope we'll talk again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for starting your day with us. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition, the penalties imposed on Bank of America for illegal business practices and how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is targeting junk banking fees. It's 20 minutes past 8. WBUR supporters include Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com and Avita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón, now through July 30th, amrep.org. Why are we conscious? Why aren't we just robots? Right now, nobody knows the answers to those questions. Well, 25 years ago, a neuroscientist and a philosopher made a bet that by now, science and philosophy would understand what makes and defines human consciousness. Want to guess who won? Find out on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, maybe a few scattered showers in spots this afternoon. Temperatures getting into the 90s. Tonight, it'll be partly cloudy with lows around 70 degrees and partly sunny tomorrow. Highs in the 80s. It's 76 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From the Sci Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. 
From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. A converted yellow school bus will arrive today in El Paso, Texas. Yesterday, it was in Uvalde. And before that, it was in Santa Fe, Texas. All three are locations of mass shootings. The school bus is traveling across America, stopping at the scenes of modern massacres as part of a new effort to raise awareness about gun violence. David Martin Davies of Texas Public Radio met up with the tour in Uvalde. Stop Gun Violence is painted on the side of the bus, and it's on a nationwide road trip organized by Manuel and Patricia Oliver. Five years ago, their son Joaquin Oliver was one of 17 people killed in the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The number one goal here is to create awareness. I I don't have the power to do anything else. Manuel Oliver says he's hoping that by connecting the multiple mass shootings, he's able to amplify his message that something needs to be done about gun violence in America. He'd like to see a ban on assault-style weapons. And on this national tour, he's also connecting on a personal level with families that have suffered a loss similar to his. I see Brad, a father from Uvalde, that now he's, I consider my friend. And I see him and, and, and we connect. Brett is Brett Cross. His son, Uzziah Garcia, was killed along with 18 other children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. He says working with the Olivers has helped him deal with his grief. They've become family. You know, us, us in this club, we become family because we're the only ones that know what this feels like. And we don't want anybody else to have to feel this way. Rhonda Hart's 14-year-old daughter, Kimberly Vaughn, was killed in the Santa Fe, Texas high school shooting, along with seven classmates and two teachers. She's standing in front of the school bus in the 103-degree heat and speaking to a crowd who wants to see tougher gun laws. The only reason we haven't had a school shooting for the last five or six weeks is because school is out of session. Manuel Oliver says the tour in his son's honor will visit 25 cities affected by mass shootings. He's hoping to build momentum and eventually end in Washington, D.C. with a caravan of school buses to make a huge statement. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies in Uvalde, Texas. More than half of the women in U.S. prisons are parents. At a women's prison in Minnesota, one group works to help mothers who've lost parental rights manage their sorrow. Minnesota Public Radio's Catherine Richard has this report. A recent meeting at Minnesota's Shakopee Women's Prison begins with some good news. I've been on the fence about whether or not my daughter was going to talk to me. I've talked to her every day since last week. Sarah Brown's been in prison since last fall. She's lost parental rights to all four of her children amidst a struggle with addiction, but it's the first time she's spoken to her oldest kids since then. Brown sits with eight other inmates who share a similar grief. Some lost their parental rights long before entering prison. Others voluntarily gave them up when they were incarcerated. In Minnesota, it's rare to regain parental rights once they've been terminated. Brown feels lucky to speak with her kids and to have people to talk to about it. I feel like if it wasn't for this group, I might not have been where I needed to be when this happened. I feel like I would have panicked or I would have pushed it away. 
This gathering is the end of a 12-week program run by Bellis. It's a nonprofit that supports women who've lost their parental rights. Executive Director Jenny Eldridge says the prison support group is unique, and so is the type of loss participants are asked to examine. She calls it ambiguous loss. That is a loss for which there's no hope of closure. So it could be someone who's lost at sea. It could even be someone who has dementia. Or someone who's lost the right to parent. The child is out there, and you're mourning that child, but the child's not dead. There's no funeral. No one brings casseroles to your house. Eldridge says these feelings are rarely recognized by society. We think of kids in foster care and the foster families and the adoptive families, and we should. That's right. But somehow the mom has gotten pushed way off to the side. And she says none are more overlooked than mothers in prison. So this spring, Bellis brought its support group to the Minnesota's sole facility for incarcerated women, the Shakopee Prison. The goal, says Eldridge, is to help the women here develop coping skills so they don't return. The women tell us, I'm staying sober because I know I have this group to come to next week, and I have to look at these women in the eyes, and I want to be okay for them. Last check-ins, you ladies. All right. At the last session, there's caramel rolls to celebrate. The women sit in a circle, the desks in front of them decorated with brightly colored name tags, the names of their children written on the back. They talk about what they are both grateful for and sad about. Beth Shaw chimes in. I both dislike and love my daughter's adoptive parents. I have my reasons for just having some heavy feelings towards them, but I also love them for what they're doing. It's a common theme. Within this group of mothers, there's a range of relationships with their kids. Some see and talk with their children regularly because they've been adopted by relatives. Others, like Haley Eno, have no relationship with their children, but hope that changes. When I get out, I want to have my cosmetology license and actually do something with my life. And so when my son does turn 18, he'll come look for me and I won't be all messed up on drugs or anything. I'll be sober and I'll have a place for him, you know, there for him when I wasn't before. Reconnecting with family is essential, says Joanna Woolman. She leads the Institute to Transform Child Protection at Mitchell Hamlin Law School. Every individual deserves dignity and respect and that the the sort of societal shame that we put on mothers who have done something that we perceive to be bad or wrong or doesn't live up to our expectations of what a mother should do, they pay such a heavy price. Back at the Shakopee prison, Sarah Brown says the group has helped her let go of the shame of not parenting her kids. I don't leave for a year. I'm down to my one year. But when I leave, I know that I won't ever go back because I've had, I have this second chance. Without these guys, I would still be living in that guilt and that shame of, like, failing them. Before the meeting ends, facilitator Bethany Gilmer Jansen offers some sobering words. There's a lot of hope that your kiddos and you will reconnect, and I want to name and hold space for, they might not, right? They might not. They might not, and that grief is so hard. When that grief hits, I want you to look to others who have that shared experience. Because that grief, she says, isn't meant to be felt alone. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Richard in Shakopee, Minnesota. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Today's top stories are just ahead and in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the author Milan Kundera, who wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being, has died. We'll take a look back at his legacy. It's 8.30. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO is pledging more military aid to Ukraine, but the alliance is stopping short of inviting Kyiv to join, at least for now. At a summit in Lithuania, the alliance told Ukraine it can join NATO when certain conditions are met and the allies agree. Amanda Sloat is the National Security Council's Senior Director for Europe. We have always been clear, NATO has been clear, the president has been clear that there are standards that countries need to meet in order to join the NATO alliance. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is at the talks in Vilnius. The Republican chairman of a House committee wants answers on why the Biden administration's envoy to Iran had his security clearance suspended. NPR's Michelle Kellerman says the envoy reportedly is under investigation by the FBI. In a letter to House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Michael McCall, the State Department says it's not in a position to provide documents related to Robert Malley's security clearance or personnel matters. McCall calls that a, quote, absolutely unacceptable response. He points out that this is a person whose mission it is to negotiate with the Islamic Republic of Iran, adding, in his words, nothing could be more serious than this. McCall says he will be following up with the State Department to get a classified briefing. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Heat warnings and advisories are in effect in more than a dozen states, including nearly all of Texas. San Antonio's expecting an afternoon high of 104 degrees. Leslie Van Houten has been paroled in California after spending more than a half century behind bars. The follower of Charles Manson took part in a double murder in 1969. Libby Rainey with LAist reports from Los Angeles. Leslie Van Houten participated in the infamous murders of Los Angeles grocer Leno LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. After her death sentence was commuted to life in prison, Van Houten was praised for good behavior behind bars. She was first recommended for parole in 2016, but that was overturned by then-Governor Jerry Brown. The current governor, Gavin Newsom, did the same, but he was overruled by an appeals court earlier this year. Newsom says he is disappointed with the decision to release Van Houten. In voiding his block of Van Houten's parole, the appeals court said she had shown, quote, extraordinary rehabilitative efforts while in prison, including earning bachelor's and master's degrees. For NPR News, I'm Libby Rainey in Los Angeles. State police in Illinois say three people were killed this morning in a crash involving a Greyhound bus and several commercial vehicles along Interstate 70. More than a dozen people were injured, some seriously. Several were flown to a hospital for treatment. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. It's another slow day for drivers dealing with the closure of the Sumner Tunnel this morning. For drivers using the Ted Williams Tunnel, it's about a 25-minute trip from Boardman Street in East Boston to 93. On Route 1 South, 35 minutes from Route 16 to the Zakem Bridge. The blue line of the T and the East Boston Ferry are both free while the Sumner is closed. You can learn more about getting around the Sumner closure by visiting WBUR.org. Governor Maura Healey plans to tour flood damage in western Massachusetts today. Rainfall there has washed out roadways and flooded basements and fields. Some farmers along the Connecticut and Deerfield rivers say they've lost their entire season of crops. Many of them say they have no way to recover their losses. Boston Mayor Michelle Michelle Wu plans to tour White Stadium in Franklin Park this morning to talk about renovation plans. Earlier this year, Wu requested proposals to 
renovate the stadium. Only one was submitted. A group of investors is trying to renovate the stadium to bring a professional women's soccer team to the city. Part of that proposal includes improvements for Boston Public Schools athletics. The time is 8.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In sports, Red Sox pitcher Kenley Jansen faced just one batter in last night's All-Star game, and he struck him out. Still, the National League beat the American League 3-2. to two. Our weather forecast, sunshine today, maybe a few scattered showers and spots this afternoon. Highs getting into the 90s today. Tonight, partly cloudy, lows near 70 degrees, and sunny tomorrow with highs in the 80s. It is 76 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Bank of America, the country's second largest bank, has been ordered to pay more than $100 million to its customers. That's after federal regulators found that the bank illegally double-charged insufficient fund fees, withheld rewards bonuses, and opened credit cards without their customers' authorization over a period of several years. The bank is also being hit with another $150 million in civil penalties. Rahit Chopra is director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. His agency, along with the Office of the Controller of the Currency, led the investigation of Bank of America, and he's with us now to tell us more. Mr. Chopra, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So $250 million in, in fines and penalties overall, that's a big number. But Bank of America reported billions of dollars in profits last year. Do you think these fines and penalties are sufficient to uh, act as a deterrent to future bad behavior? Well, certainly, this is not Bank of America's first run-in with the law. And as one of the nation's largest banks, it's important that we carefully police all of their activities. But in this instance, we found certain egregious practices like double-dipping on fees, withholding credit card rewards that were promised, and even opening fake accounts. They're ceasing the activity and we're sending a message to other banks that they cannot engage in the same illegal conduct. So this is, as you just noted, this isn't the first enforcement action that Bank of America has faced for um, you know, illegal activities in its consumer business. Is there a point at which bank executives should be held personally responsible for, for these practices? Yeah, I think that this rinse-repeat cycle of penalties doesn't always fix the underlying problem. That's one of the reasons why the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is looking harder at individuals, is looking at reforms outside of paying penalties, including outright limitations on certain growth and other business practices. But there's no question that we needed to obtain substantial redress for the victims that Bank of America affected. 
those consumers will not have to lift a finger in order to get those refunds and they'll be getting over a hundred million dollars. So, so what about that on the whole question of credit, uh, you know, cash rewards and bonus points and things like that? How regulated are credit card rewards, and what should consumers do if they suspect that they aren't receiving promised perks? Well, one of the biggest attributes that consumers are looking at when shopping for a credit card are those rewards. It's not just airline miles or hotel points. There's now so much that card issuers are competing on, and we will not tolerate when a bank is advertising but not living up to those promises. In this case, consumers were deprived of hundreds of dollars each, and we'll be looking to make sure that other banks are not just trumpeting a fake promise, but really living up to it. Rahit Chopra is director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. Mr. Chopra, thanks so much for talking to us, and I do hope we'll talk again. Thanks again. Just before midnight tonight in Los Angeles, the contract between Hollywood Studios and the film and TV actors union, SAG-AFTRA, will expire. That means the actors could go on strike joining screenwriters who walked off the job in May. NPR's Mandalit Del Barco has been reporting on Hollywood labor news. Mandalit, it seems like we were just here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. The two sides agreed to an extension back then. And now coming down to the wire, the union has agreed with the studios represented by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers to call in federal mediators. All right. Federal mediators. So what have been the uh, main sticking points of the negotiations? Well, you know, both sides have a media blackout, but we understand they're still very far apart on at least two key issues. That is residuals and AI. Actors want to get paid more residuals from the streaming platforms, especially if their movies or series are hits. Uh, They want to tie their compensation to the number of views. And there still may be disagreement over the use of artificial intelligence on work done by actors. They want to control where their likenesses are used. They don't want to be replaced by computer-generated images. These are very similar issues to what the Writers Guild of America has been fighting over in their strike. And, you know, I should note that many of us here at NPR are members of SAG-AFTRA, but broadcast journalists have a very different contract than the Hollywood actors. Manalik, you and I drive around L.A. all the time. Uh, We Mm -hmm. see people, you know, all around the studios on strike. So what's been the mood like in Los Angeles? Because it's hard not to think about this story living here. That's right. You see the the picket lines all over the place. And there's a lot of nervousness and and some excitement over how this could go. This could be the first time Hollywood actors and writers walk off the job together since 1960. Uh, 98% of SAG-AFTRA's members already voted to authorize a strike if their demands aren't met. And a lot of big-named actors, including Meryl Streep and Fran Drescher, the president of the union, signed a letter urging negotiators not to cave into the studios. You know, I was outside Amazon Studios yesterday, and I found Jamila Webb. She's an actor you may have seen on Family Reunion on Netflix or Reboot on Hulu. Well, like a lot of actors, she's been picketing in solidarity with the writers. We're ready to go on strike, but we don't know if it is going to come to that. I know sometimes Hollywood and and entertainment can feel like we're in our own bubble, but this is an opportunity to really get the message out to people who are like, hey, are my shows coming on in the fall? No. (laughs) And this is why. Ultimately, the goal is, right, to get a great contract. That's what we want. And if it comes to that, me and my friends, we're ready. We're ready.
Webb says she's prepping to be a strike captain, but already the writer's strike has closed down almost all production. Shows and films are delayed, so the union actors haven't been working anyway, and the writers say they're still waiting for the studios to return to their negotiations, too. So, okay, if they do strike, what happens first? Well, we might see a lot of movie and TV stars on the picket lines, but union actors won't be able to promote their shows or movies that they're in. The Emmy Award nominations are coming out today, and the actors won't be able to do press for that. They won't be able to show up at next week's Comic-Con to promote their projects. They won't be interviewed or photographed on the red carpet. There are reports that SAG-AFTRA met with 140 Hollywood publicists this week to advise them about what the actors will and won't be allowed to do. These folks are reportedly very nervous about the possible strike. Panicked is the word I've seen. Uh, The whole Hollywood machine is really on pins and needles today. NPR's Manalit Del Barco. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on Morning Edition, we'll have the Marketplace Morning Report. We'll take a look at Microsoft's $69 billion purchase of video game maker Activision and why that merger is somewhat of a defeat for federal regulators who have raised antitrust questions. In our weather forecast, sunny today, a few scattered showers possible in spots. Temperatures getting into the low 90s today. Tonight, partly cloudy, lows near 70, and tomorrow should be partly sunny with highs in the 80s. It is 79 degrees in Boston. In business news, BAKX Therapeutics in Watertown is permanently closing its doors and laying off its entire staff. Company leaders say the decision is a result of what they call a challenging funding environment. BAKX first launched two years ago to create treatments for leukemia and lymphoma. It had announced a partnership with the French biotech Ibsen that was estimated to be worth more than $850 million. Cambridge-based Crossbow Therapeutics is celebrating $80 million in initial funding. The biotech startup says the money will help it develop therapies to target a broad range of cancers. And Manchester-Boston Regional Airport in New Hampshire is rated the best domestic airport, according to Travel and Leisure's annual World's Best Awards. Readers told the publication they like the airport because it's a less busy alternative to Logan Airport. TF Green Airport in Rhode Island ranked sixth on that list. The time is 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Biomedical startups are racing to revolutionize the way humans reproduce by manufacturing lab-grown eggs and sperm. There is something intrinsic sharing a life that is half me and half my husband. I don't have that capacity right now, and I am devoting my life to try to change that. How one company says they're getting closer to making this a reality. I'm Adrian Florido. That story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. We have sad news this morning. The writer Milan Kundera has died in Paris. He was 94 years old. The celebrated Czech-born author was interested in big topics, sex, surveillance, death, totalitarianism. But his books always approach them with a sense of humor, a certain lightness. NPR's Andrew Limbong has this appreciation. There's a conversational tone to Milan Kundera's most popular book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. He starts off ruminating on philosophy, mentioning Nietzsche and Christ and Parmenides, and you think, "Uh uh-oh, this book is about to get way too heady for me, until he introduces us to his main character and distills these thoughts into a singular image. I have been thinking about Tomas for many years. This is from the audiobook of Unbearable Lightness. But only in the light of these reflections did I see him clearly. I saw him standing at the window of his flat and looking across the courtyard at the opposite walls, not knowing what to do. Kundera played around with dichotomies, simple images against high-minded philosophy, presenting totalitarianism as both momentous and everyday, sex being both deeply serious and kind of gross and funny. He's interested in what he calls the thinking novel. Michelle Woods teaches literature at SUNY New Paltz. She wrote a book about the many translations of Kundera's work. And she says Kundera thought readers should come to novels looking for more than just plot. But to actually come away from it with more questions than answers. Milan Kundera was born in Brno, Czechoslovakia, in 1929. His first book, The Joke, was a satirical take on totalitarian communism. The Czech government held up its publication, insisted that Kundera change a few things, but he refused. It was eventually published in 1967 to wide acclaim. A year later, 1968, the country, which was in the middle of a cultural revolution, was invaded by the Soviet Union, and Kundera was blacklisted. His books were banned from stores and libraries. He was fired from his teaching job. He tried to stay in his home country, but eventually left for France in 1975. Kundera set unbearable lightness during this time in Czech history. The book was later made into a movie. Tomas, in the movie, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, is a doctor who, amidst all this political turmoil and unrest, is busy juggling lovers. Life so light. It's like an outline we can't ever fill in or correct, make any better. It's frightening. The book, coupled with his status as a writer in exile, made Kundera popular across the globe, something Michelle Wood said he bristled against. He really hated the idea that People were obsessed by the celebrity author. He didn't do many interviews. He didn't like being glorified. And even after being exiled from his home, he didn't like being seen as a dissident. It's maybe apocryphal, but apparently when he first went back to the Czech Republic after 1989, he wore a disguise, like a fake moustache and stuff, so that he wouldn't be recognized. He was always interested in humor, especially in the face of something deathly serious. In a rare 1983 interview with the Paris Review, he says, My lifetime ambition has been to unite the utmost seriousness of question with the utmost lightness of form. And mixing the two together, Milan Kundera said, reveals something honest about our lives. Andrew Limbong and PR News. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Amy Martinez. 
And you're with WBUR in Boston. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. And on the show today, they'll have the latest on the NATO summit today and a report on a spike in gang violence in France. It's 10 minutes before 9. Why are we conscious? Why aren't we just robots? Right now, nobody knows the answers to those questions. Well, 25 years ago, a neuroscientist and a philosopher made a bet that by now, science and philosophy would understand what makes and defines human consciousness. Want to guess who won? Find out on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories WBUR is following this Wednesday morning. A new report shows the consumer price index rose 3 percent last month compared to a year ago, and that's the lowest increase since March of 2021. President Biden's meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today on the final day of the NATO summit in Lithuania and the southwestern U.S. is bracing for more extreme weather from a record-breaking heat wave that's bringing temperatures above 110 degrees. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. In our forecast, sunshine today, a few scattered showers possible in spots this afternoon. Temperatures getting into the low 90s today. Partly cloudy tonight with lows near 70 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, highs in the 80s, and then a chance of showers Friday and every day into early next week. It is 79 degrees in Boston. What are you going to do with the money the number two bank in America has to put back in so many accounts? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Indeed, a streamlined hiring solution. Indeed helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com slash business. First inflation came down in June. Today's Consumer Price Index finds prices up just 3% in a year, just 1% above the central bank's ideal. The jump made in June was two-tenths of a percent, half of forecast. The 10-year interest rate down sharply, 3.9% now. S&P futures are up seven-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures up 1%. We have more details this morning on the $100 million Bank of America has to give back to customers for wrongly dinging people, sometimes over and over, and not making good on other promises to customers. It'll also pay another $150 million in penalties. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau enforces federal consumer financial laws. Rohit Chopra is its director. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So in the case of the overdraft fees, a customer tries to take out more money than they have that's not allowed, and there's a fee but they may have ended up paying a fee more than one time for that one withdrawal? That's right. We found that banks are charging all sorts of fees to customers who may not have enough money in their account. And there's all sorts of ways they generate more of these fees. Some of it involves reordering payment transactions so that people might think they have enough money But once it's reordered, they pay even more. In this case, we found that a single transaction 
might lead to multiple fees because of the way they set up their systems. Another piece of this was opening accounts without customers' permission. I mean, is this about fine print on approval forms or were accounts open that customers had no intention of opening? It's more the latter. I think what we have found across a number of banks is pressure cooker sales goals pushed on employees. This was, of course, most famously discovered at Wells Fargo about a decade ago, leading to so many illegal applications and enrolling consumers' accounts that they never wanted and without their knowledge. We identified this occurring at Bank of America and have ordered them to clean up these practices and they will be suspending their sales goals that led to these fake accounts. For people who have or had B of A accounts, what's the process? Do customers have to figure out where they've been dinged and then prove it? So consumers do not need to do anything to get these refunds. And in many cases, those refunds have already started. We identified illegal activity in Bank of America's credit card business where they withheld rewards in the form of cash. Those are all going to happen automatically. The CFPB, though, is not going to take Bank of America's word for it. We'll be closely supervising the remediation process. Bank of America got a statement to us saying they've gotten better about these practices. Quote, we voluntarily reduced overdraft fees and eliminated all non-sufficient fund fees in the first half of 2022. I suppose that's progress. What I share with many bank CEOs is that laws are not suggestions for them. These are not something that small banks or individuals can just shrug and ignore. Bank of America was operating many of its businesses illegally, and we are forcing them to change that. It is good that banks are suspending some of their junk fee practices, but there's more to do to make sure that consumers are being treated fairly. Rohit Chopra, director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a federal outfit based in Washington. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks again. Microsoft, which makes its video game console, has won a court's approval to move forward with its $69 billion purchase of Activision Blizzard, which makes video games. It's a vertical merger, two companies addressing different parts of the same industry. This ruling is a defeat for the Federal Trade Commission, led by Lena Khan. Marketplace's Stephanie Hughes has more. Rutgers law professor Michael Carrier compares the FTC's antitrust fights to it playing a vintage video game, Asteroids where you have all these asteroids in the shape of big tech that are coming in. And the question is whether or not they have the appropriate artillery. And Carrier says these legal challenges to big vertical mergers are tougher to win on because they could have pro-competitive effects. There could be efficiencies for consumers. However, the increased scrutiny that comes with the FTC's lawsuits may act as a deterrent against anti-competitive behavior. Mark Lemley is a law professor at Stanford, who's represented both Microsoft and Activision on unrelated matters. The FTC's sort of aggressive stance against mergers has certainly made companies think twice about merging. But he says if the FTC doesn't win these legal challenges, its artillery is less effective. 
I'm Stephanie Hughes for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. With this persistent heat in Phoenix, Texas, and beyond, the Biden administration has new funding to help vulnerable people cope. Here's Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer. The White House has spent more than $3 billion to help cover low-income households' cooling costs, open cooling centers, and distribute air conditioners. There's a weatherization program from the Energy Department and money to help modernize the electric grid. There's funding to help make schools safe spaces during extreme heat and when smoke from wildfires makes the air unsafe. The administration is also developing standards to protect workers during extreme heat. The White House says so far there have been a dozen weather events this year costing a billion dollars. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. And this is 90.9 WBUR, weather forecast calling for sunshine today. A few scattered showers and spots this afternoon. Highs getting into the low 90s today. Tonight, partly cloudy, lows near 70. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs in the 80s, and a chance of showers Friday with temperatures in the 80s. It is 79 degrees in Boston. Coming up on 9 o'clock, stay with us. BBC is next. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.